Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer of the Mission. I'm Chad Grillis, CEO of the Mission, and we have a very special guest today that we are excited about. Yeah, so we have Teen Zuo, CEO of Zora. We're here talking about his new book. We're talking about his background, career in tech. Yeah, banging the table with the book. Got a dog-eared copy in front of me here. It was an excellent read. We're going to be talking about the book, Zora's recent IPO, and so much more. Yeah, so let's get into it. Team, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks, guys, for having me on the show. Really excited. Yeah, of course. Likewise. Um, So we start every interview with the origin story. That's a fun place to start. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your early days at uh, Cornell and what made you interested in technology, business, uh, what were some yeah. early inspirations? Well, I thought you were talking about the origin story of Zora, but you're taking <laughs> me way back. So, um, gosh, I, I, I grew up in New York. I'm probably a classic immigrant family. Grew up in New York. And when it came time to go to college, you mentioned Cornell. Uh, decided to stay in the East Coast and uh, went to Cornell up in central New York. Nice. Would you uh, study there? Were there any like passions or sports or what? Yeah. What got you excited there? Yeah, so I was uh, in electric engineering, and, and this was going to be the late 80s. Um, you know, software had not exploded yet. There were some uh, PCs uh, in the market, certainly, and I, play, I was playing a lot with PCs. But the computer science um, profession was in the early stages. And so I started off uh, applying to the electrical engineering school and decided to see it through. Uh, but my passion was really around software. Uh, and I had a couple internships at Hewlett Packard, summer internships. And realized I really did not want to be an electrical engineer. <laughs> uh, but this whole new burgeoning software space programming was really, really interesting to me. The new PC, uh, it was probably one of those uh, teenagers uh, back then, right? You hear the stories, they play with the Communist Store 64, they play with the TRS 80, right? And I was certainly one of those, uh, those kids, did a lot with the early PCs, and that embarked on my career in the software industry. Stickball during the day and uh, electrical engineering at night? Uh, well, stickball is probably even earlier. Stickball was going to be <laughs> the childhood growing up in Brooklyn, on uh, the streets of Brooklyn. My mom's from Brooklyn. So, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, she did hopscotch. Hopscotch. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, I probably won't admit it, but there's probably some hopscotch in there somewhere. <laughs> so some of those early days with the Commodore and everything, were you first interested in software for the gaming applications or... What was the uh, what was well, your early interest based on? I, I took a different path. I mean, uh, I probably you know built some basic games, gosh, just back in the day. But but the, the really meaningful part was um, I realized that I like building applications for businesses. I, I like building applications that, that users would use to collect data, to collaborate. Right now, what we now think of as enterprise software, and so early on, um, you know, really doing part time stuff as a student, I wound up building a bunch of applications using this technology called dbase an early database on the uh, on the pc and uh yeah you yeah, for the radio folks at home you guys are nodding like you know what dbase is <laughs> but this is a technology that probably doesn't exist anymore that was back in the 80s an early precursor to things like 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 oracle things like NoSQL, right the things that we have today okay were there any uh inspirations or any type of example you saw where somebody was making or serving businesses that kind of showed you that this is possible because I think B2B is something that people typically aren't exposed to until much later on. It sounds like you found, yeah. found that pretty early. Well, one thing I really liked about software was the immediate gratification. And so um, in, in, in the B2B space, when you're working really closely with customers, I mean, you could literally you know, spend all night coding, bring it in the next day, give it to the end users, and get that immediate, immediate feedback. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I really, really loved, right? Versus saying, you know, creating a game 
Sure. Uh, you're hoping to get into distribution channel. You're hoping that people will play with it one day, right? I was able to get immediate impact, immediate uh, feedback. Sure. And and have immediate impact on 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 the companies and the customers that I was working with. And that seems like it would be really fun to see immediate um, improvement and solutions yeah. to people's like biggest challenges. Yeah. So that's uh, that's really exciting. So when did you make the jump to the West Coast and to to ultimately to Oracle? Yeah. So coming out of um, coming out of uh, school. Um, I was looking at a, a bunch of possible jobs and I wound up landing at Oracle. And, and, and again, it was, it was this whole idea of software. It was consulting, it was databases. And it was in New York. And I've been growing up in New York, the idea of going back to, to New York City, at least. Uh, Cornell's in New York State, but not in the city. Uh, was exciting. So I, I worked at Oracle for the first six years out of school. Um, Oracle is obviously a Silicon Valley-based company. So I was coming out to Silicon Valley uh, probably two or three times a year. And, um, and and fell in love with the technology scene, right? Having grown up in New York, gone to school in New York, I wasn't yet exposed uh, to the West Coast. But through the summer internships, through working in Oracle, I decided, you know, I want to be in tech. I want to be in software. Silicon Valley is a place to be. I looked for multiple opportunities to do so. And um, specifically, I, I got into Stanford. I got into Stanford Business School. It, it took a couple tries, uh, two years in a row. Uh, but when oh, I finally really? got it, I, didn't yeah, know that. I decided to, uh, this is it. I'm going to move out to California. And, and so I've this is here ever since. late 90s, right? When this this is... would be uh, the late 90s, yeah. Okay. So where, did you apply to other schools? and Or is, was it just Stanford or Bust? Uh, it was Stanford or Bust. Wow. I, might have, I think I applied to Wharton as well. Uh, but, but my goal was to, to get into Stanford. And so the second year when I applied again, I, I got in and that was it. So. so then you met a guy named Mark somewhere along the way mm-hmm. at Oracle. How, yeah. did that, how did that happen? So my first time I met uh, Mark, I don't know if he even remembers the story. Um, I, I was actually in sales. My, my customer was a company called MCI. I, I guess it was an early precursor to Verizon and uh, AT&T. And, um, and this would be, you know, the mid-90s and the internet was just getting started, right? I started playing with the internet when um, it wasn't Netscape. It was still this thing called Mozilla uh, Communications. Mark Andreessen, I think, was still in Chicago. And, um, and, and so, so fell in love with the internet. MCI was one of the leading companies in the internet. They actually owned the backbone of the internet back then. And they wanted to come out to, to California to talk to Oracle and ask about Oracle's vision for the internet. Uh, it turned out Oracle at the time had no vision for the internet, but Mark Benioff did. And so Mark Benioff had, had single-handedly created Oracle's vision, uh, cobbled together a set of technologies and, and he actually presented with Larry Ellison to, to the MCI uh, technology leadership team. And so that's the first time I met, met, met Mark. And, and, and Mark was always like this. Mark was always on the leading edge of where Oracle needed to go, right? He was on the leading edge of client server. He was on the leading edge of the internet. Uh, he was on the leading edge of uh, unstructured databases back then, right? Before what we now know is NoSQL. And so fast forward to 99. Um, I was at an enterprise software company realizing, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, I know the future is the internet. I'm at an enterprise software company that's not focused on the internet. My two choices were to look, just abandon enterprise software and go all in on the internet. And at the time it would have been companies like Webvan, Pets.com, yep. right? Um, uh, the, the big legends uh, now <laughs> that, that people talk about, right? With the bust. Um, but I was hoping to find something to marry the two things. Software, all right, business software, and the internet. And um, wound up realizing that Mark was peeling off at Oracle at the time to start Salesforce. 
and uh, sent an email to cooljobsatsalesforce.com. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm in Mark's <laughs> house uh, interviewing with him. And, uh, and I, you know, I was started there two weeks later before they had offices, before they had customers, Employee before the product one, was right? ready. Yeah. yeah. Did, did he show you the V2 mom on the napkin of like, this is where we're going? Uh, I don't know if he showed it to me in the interview, but, but the V2 mom has been a big part of Salesforce. I don't know how many V2 mom sessions I've been in. <laughs> at Salesforce starting in the early days as well. And so, so quick, quick question in the early days, how were people talking or thinking about where the internet was going? Like SaaS software as a service, that type of acronym didn't really exist yet or did it? No. Or was, were there any precursors? Oh, like, there was a lot of precursors. What, what were some favorite like term, terms for what was going to happen? When Oh, we yeah. did. A, so we, we called it on-demand computing. I think okay. we did a partnership with IBM around that term. Um, um, we invented a term that lasted maybe for two days, internet <laughs> business services. I think there's a bunch of us That's that got together, all. tried to use that, that didn't work. Um, and so, so software as a service is probably, so the 99 is probably 2001, 2002, before that term really started to, uh, to coalesce. So one of the reasons why we were so excited to interview is you're in the middle of, you've been technical, you'd been in sales, and then at Salesforce, you were CMO, you're chief strategy officer. Yeah. So you've done sales marketing, you've done product, you've done strategy. Like your background was kind of in all of that and none of that. How do you, how did you kind of stay yeah. vigilant on your career path? Well, um, I didn't. <laughs> and, and so I get brought into a lot of career advice um, and, and, and I do, there's nothing wrong with a tractor advice, right? And, and, and one of the companies I looked at um, when I was graduating school was, was, was Accenture. I think it was called Anderson Consulting at the time, right? Mm -hmm. and, that was, and they definitely presented a, a career track, right? You start with this level, you start with this level. They start early. So you, you have, they want to start you in the company. Yeah, and they want then to start to your company. You, they, they generally don't take consultants yep. that go, that like have been a consultant for 10 years. Yeah, they want to it's grow. hard to get in, right? And, and so, so that was okay. There's another company, um, I think it was GTE that said, well, we'll let you put you on a two-year management track. We're going to have you spend six months here, six months there. And I just think the world's a really big place, and, and I think there's a lot to explore. And so I've always um, geared towards more lateral moves, right? And, and, and there's no specific thing, but when, in hindsight, um, it, it's felt like every two or three years, right, I wind up changing roles. Uh, I've, only, I've only worked at three other companies before starting Zora, so it's always in the same company, but, but a lot of lateral moves. And I think in, in, when, when you do that, you just wind up with a, a much bigger tool set of, 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 of experiences and capabilities. So I was listening to an interview of you back in 2007 on entrepreneur, entrepreneurial thought leaders at Stanford. And it was really interesting because Salesforce was about 1,800 employees, about 500 million yeah. in rev back then. Yeah. Not too dissimilar from like where you are at Zora now. That's right. yeah. So like back then, what is the genesis of you you know, meeting a few people and starting to think about like, hey, I want to go off on my own as first time entrepreneur, right? First time, uh, first time, first time uh, CEO, absolutely. First time founder, first time CEO. Um, because I was a Salesforce so early, I did get to see quite a bit, yeah. right, of that at early stage build a process. And, and I'm always going to have a, a sense of uh, ownership and authorship, right, to, 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 to that company. Um, you know, it, it was, it was a set of things. I, I, I think um, what I loved about 
Salesforce, and, and people could look at it with hindsight now, and a lot of the concepts that are created in the software as a service industry, whether it's it's the formation of a customer success department, yep. this whole land and expand type strategy, or or the role, uh, which is you know a great function these days to to, to to allow people to get into sales, is that the whole sales development or you know BDR SDR sales development function was something that we created at Salesforce, right? We created Salesforce because we had all these. Uh, inbound leads coming off this thing called the internet, right? Which was brand new back then, and and our salespeople wouldn't wouldn't touch it, right? It's just they didn't have time and energy, and and so so we said, well, the only way to do this is actually create a sales development function, and uh, and so all these concepts were, were were concepts that 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 we invented. There's still a lot more to do uh, at Salesforce, um, but when, when when we looked at the broader opportunity and says, well, what we loved about uh, my nine years, right? What I loved about nine years at Salesforce was this whole idea of trying to figure things out, right? To figure out how to make the subscription business model work for the software industry, right? Which now in hindsight was was the big, big disruptive force in the software industry in the last 20 years. And our question was, um, is that really just going to be limited to the software sector or was this a broad trend that could apply to anything? And um, if it was, that was really interesting, right? Because that gave us a whole new white space of applications that we would want to go build, right? And um, because this is a brand new business model. And we had a sense of what those things were because we had to build it ourselves with Salesforce. And it was some, not something that we ever knew that we could do well. It's something we always wanted a third party to do. So the big, big leap was actually not the technology. The big leap for us was, could the subscription business model apply to other industries? And after thinking about it for 60, 90 days, we decided it, it's not just going to apply to a few other industries. It could apply to all other in- industries. And, and those are the early days you see in the book where we looked at um, examples like Zipcar, right? Early versions of Uber, early versions of Lyft. And this whole idea of, well, one day you might not have to buy a car. You can simply just use these cars that are sitting around. And the whole idea of autonomous cars wasn't even, even on the radar back then. Or the whole idea that more and more people, there's only about probably about a million people at the time uh, that that just were not buying movies anymore. They weren't buying DVDs. They were simply subscribed to Netflix instead, right? And so this idea that you don't have to buy movies, just get access to anything you want, right, was really, really interesting. And and we didn't foresee that you know, Netflix would be 130 million subscribers today because back then it was just still, still sending out DVDs. But the same principles, the same principles that, that, that we believe, that we saw that would work for, for the software industry was working these other industries. And none of those principles were unique to any industry. And so we said, look, we don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know if it's two years or 20 years, right, or 200 years. Um, but it really felt like because of the Internet, because of technology, uh, the, the iPhone wasn't even popular back then, um, that eventually all industries would be transformed. And, and, and now 10 years after making the bet, it's, 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 it's starting to look like it was precedent. So... You grab your co-founders and you say, like, hey, let's go buy a domain and, like, slam, our, right. slam our names together and yeah. make a company? Yeah, that was basically it, yeah. Put together a prototype, pitch it to some customers, and, uh, and away we went. What's so interesting about that is I feel like a lot of people start with the technology, and most people don't start with the movement. And, like, you were Analyzing saying... Analyzing the cultural change before it happens. Yeah. And, and like, it's like, it, you didn't... So one of the things I like in the book is you mentioned some of the conversations over a bottle of wine where you essentially yeah. try to pick apart and see what can't be turned into a subscription. So yeah. you're basically early on almost trying to poke holes in the business model. Yeah. How many, what were those conversations like? And um, do you feel that they were like really useful in the genesis of the business? Um, yeah. 
Well, I'll, I'll take a quick step back. I mean, a lot of your listeners are going to be here in Silicon Valley. When, when I look at Silicon Valley, when I look at um, um, the big ideas, right? At the, at the, if you try to boil it down, simplify it down, what you're looking for is you're looking for some change, right? That, that's happened in the world around us that, that creates a separation of the past and the future, right? Because if you can find one of these things that's big enough, then you got a lot of stuff to play with, right? You got a lot of, you got, you got runway. And, and so in, in a lot of the changes these days uh, that we experience all have the root in the internet, right? Now you see AI is doing a bunch of stuff, mobile is doing a bunch of stuff, but you're looking for one of these big, big changes. Um, and then it gives you, you, you obsess about the implications of the change. So Salesforce was really about obsessing about now that there's an internet, um, what does that mean for enterprise software? Right, and, and 10 years of obsessing about it, you know, creates the software as a service industry. Um, we're obsessing about this new business model, right? And yes, we lived it for nine years in our industry, but when we obsess about what does it mean for other industries? What does it mean for the auto industry? What does it mean for the retail industry? What does it mean for our general economy? What does it mean for, for society? And you can see that we're, you know, we're, we, we get obsessed about it. And so, yeah, that led to a lot of late night discussions over wine and beer uh, about, well, how far is this thing going to go, right? Can, can, can people subscribe to cement one day? Can people subscribe to floors one day? Can people subscribe to right, big tractors one day? And, um, and, and a lot of those thinkings, a lot of the conversations with many, many companies is real ultimately what, um, what wound up uh, in, 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 in the contents of the book. And it turns out the answer is yes. <laughs> it turns out the answer is yes. You have the examples of Hyundai in there, yeah. but there's, I think, you know, you talk about the trend too of access. Access is a, uh, the ultimate customer-centric thing, right? That's right. So, yeah. What do you think about the culture now? Well, I'll say millennial, even though that's a stupid word, but like the millennial culture of like just in time. And I guess it's more of just like the culture in general of like having things just in time, being able to turn something on and off as being like almost fundamental to like young people is like, hey, I have tons of options. I can just subscribe to this new thing. I can try HelloFresh for three months. And then if I don't like it, I can stop it. Do you think that like number one, there's like a cultural shift of mindset? And like number two, do you think that companies are going to face churn problems with kind of the way that um, you used to do, you've talked about uh, free trials sure. back of like, you know, before there were bake-offs or there were bake-offs. So you're saying, hey, let's just do a free trial. Yeah. So do you think that like that kind of like, hey, we're going to, I'm going to try this subscription service and then those companies are going to churn having not as predictable revenues, like going to be an issue? Yeah. Let me sort of take that question two parts, right? The first is millennial behavior, right? I was talking with um, Lazo Block, he used to run Google, yep. uh, the people operations at Google. And we're talking about millennials, right? Sort of favorite topic. And he made a point that I totally agree with, which is he talked about, you know, what do people want in their jobs? And, and you survey as millennials, you survey, you know, he said he surveys his dad. So I'm guessing a baby boomer. And, um, and yes, you hear one, I want mission oriented. I want meaning. And then you talk to the other. It's like, well, I just want a job and a paycheck. But he said, but if you really get underneath the covers and, 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 and he talked to his dad, at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. Of course, we all want meaning. We all want impact. We all want mission. Right. It's just the millennials are better in touch with it because a lot of the layers of stuff have been you know, stripped out over time with the progress of society, the progress of technology and, and, and so on and so forth. And so when I look at um, what millennials want, I, I just feel like it's, 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 it's what we all want. Right. But it's been stripped out of, of, of a lot of the other stuff. Right. That, that society builds up into its, 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 its purest form. And so choice. Right. Uh, the ability to, you know, freedom. Right. Um, 
the ability to have control over the things that you want, right? The ability not to be bogged down by assets that you hear, like the millennials say. Ultimately, these are all the things that we want. Uh, we all want, right? But they might realize it first because they don't have as much, you know, baggage uh, over time. But so, let me push back on that for a little bit with the idea that the American dream was like own your own house, own your own car, or own your own stuff, right? And then like that is yours. Um, that's not the American dream. The American dream is 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 as an immigrant is um, through your skills and your will and your 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 hard work, you could be whatever you want. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And well, that's why I, that's what kind of why I say that is like you have this shift of like you need to own your own house. Buying is good. Like bu- like buying is good was kind of the general theme for a long time. And now you see more people are comfortable with renting just in general and like renting and subscriptions. It's like. I can turn it off and turn it on, and I don't need to spend the yeah. capital up front to do that. Yeah. Well, it's the same pattern as, as as trying to understand, like, did you ever subscribe to cement, right? It's, it's, it's not about the cement, it's about something behind it, right? So so, is it about the house, or is it about security, right? Is it is it about, you know, comfort? And and if you can get security and comfort and without the hassles, without the asset, without having to worry about the house, without having to worry about the price of the house, is it appreciating, is it depreciating? And uh, I can drop into another city and get all the comforts I'm used to having at home, right? And there's a company out there that understands this and using technology to provide these services, right? Maybe it's, it's, it's the WeWork guys with these WeLift programs. And why wouldn't I do that, right? And so, so technology is allowing us to get the things that we actually want, but without the shackles of the physical product. Right, I mean that is the story of Uber. That is the story of, of 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 cloud computing or software as a service. Get what you want without having to deal with all the hardware. Get what you want without having to worry about where's my car parked. Right? Does it have gas? Do I has it have insurance? Do I have am I up to date with my driver's license? Why should you have to worry about any of these things if, uh, if 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 you can get the outcome that you're looking for? Well, and that's the Clayton Christensen innovators dilemma, right? Like, what is the job that you're trying to do? If you want to buy a really nice car to signal to everyone that you have a really nice car, and because you like to drive cars then like that's the utility. If the utility is getting from A to B, mm-hmm. then there's right. a much more efficient way to do that. That's right. That's exactly right. And so I think this is opening up a really cool opportunity too. So um, obviously capitalism is something that is very broadly defined and we need to improve our economy and our society however we can. Could you talk a little bit about how businesses that are doing software as a service type offerings um, this gives them the ability to give back to customers in a new way. Yeah. And when more businesses uh, start offering SaaS offerings, it creates kind of like a network effect of customer centricity or how do you see that happening? Because I see this as a move towards like symbiosis where businesses can work together much more easily. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how do you view the, the uh, cultural shift like that? Well, um, it takes me back to the early days of Salesforce. And so... Um, I remember a conversation we had with uh, one of our engineers. I think it was Paul, Paul Nakata. Uh, Paul, if you're out there listening, and and <laughs> and you know, you're a software as a service company. You're offering this stuff, you know, in the cloud. Uh, I don't think we called it the cloud back then, but so you can see what your customers are doing, all right? And and that was fascinating from a perspective of somebody used to shipping software, especially me. Getting back to my background, you know, that immediate feedback loop was 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 really awesome. And I remember Paul was looking at the data and Paul was the same way. And he's saying, you know, these customers that don't use our product, uh, but pay us, they're the best customers of all, right? <laughs> because they don't cost us anything and they're just giving us money. And we pulled Paul and it's like, well, you know, that, that, that really doesn't <laughs> seem like it makes too much logical sense. And lo and behold, 
the customers that didn't use your product, they, they, they stopped paying. They, they would just cancel their subscription after a while. And they never tell a friend. And they never tell a friend. And so, so you become obsessed with, with making sure the customers have a great experience when you need them to come back every day. And we used to talk about that. This, 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 this subscription model forces a win-win relationship yeah. between the vendor and the customer versus, hey, you know, originally my objective was just to get you to buy the product. Right. And if I could trick you into buying the product, great. You now have the product. Right now, it's your problem, not my problem, and that that wasn't really a setup, right, in, uh, for for a right long term relationship. That's so yeah. true. God, that is so true, and a really great like point for the listeners to like remember about all of this is the subscription economy is you're finding products that you want to date, whereas like in yeah. the past it was like, well, yeah. I, you can I figure see. out the analogy, yeah. but it's like the one time thing, right? Like that is a much more strong. Like relationship, you can't accomplish anything great uh, like with a one-off purchase no, or anything totally. like that. You need like you mentioned in the book. I think like six months is a quick test. That's like That's very right. fast in the business world. So this sets up the stage for much longer-term relationships. So um, one of the best, one of the best companies that's been doing this, but they haven't done like gone full subscription yet. I guess technically leasing a car subscription, but Lexus back in the or whenever you're in like a Lexus uh, dealership, they're like, we want you to buy Lexus for life. There's going to be no hassle. There's going to be no whatever. Like, we're going to take care of you. Um, I remember, like, you know, I got the, like, the car appraised for whatever, 5000 uh, bucks that I was turning in. And they're like, oh, we'll just give you 6000 yeah. It was like that sort of thing. It's like they want to build customers for life. And I think a lot of people, like, want to do that. But with subscription, you actually have the, like, they're investing in you. The customer's investing in you every single month. So you have just a much more like direct relationship with them to do that. Yeah. And Hyundai is the, the example you cite too. They're now offering, I think, $267 to subscribe to a vehicle. Yeah. Um, that's kind of unprecedented. Are there any examples of uh, customers or clients of Zora that are your favorites to cite of well, like industries that are transitioning yeah. or, yeah. Well, there, there's certainly been a, uh, call it a 15, 20 year arc about caring for the customer, right? It's driven the success of Salesforce, it's driven the success of this whole CRM, customer relationship management category. Uh, if you will, and um, but but that final step, right? Uh, you, your Lexus example. I mean, you, yes, you want them to buy another Lexus, but it's still a transactional model. Yeah, yeah. Right, and and they already bought that fifty thousand dollar Lexus, right, or whatever it happens to be. But when you need them every single month because your revenue depends on it, you just start to behave very very differently. Yeah. And technology enables this. And so, how would Lexus know? You know, um, how the experience of driving the car is. Right, and, 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 and you just simple things like every time daylight savings time changes, it's a pain to change the, 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 the clock. I mean, no one really knows how to do it. The clocks are always off, right? And so how do you track, you know, now that, that, that these products, these devices are smart devices, they're smart cars, right? They're smart software, they're smart thermostats. Uh, how, do you, how do you just create an, an overall experience that makes more sense? And that subscription business model really forces you. So we have a ton of examples in the book. I should probably mention the title of the book. The book is actually called Subscribed, right? Uh, Why the subscription business model is your company's future. We, we like the example. It's, it's a chock full of examples, but, but we seem to go back to the Fender example, right? Fender guitars, because it really evokes the imagination. And it's like, well, what, what, what is this? Do you subscribe to the guitar? No, no you, you don't actually subscribe. You still buy the guitar. You still walk in a guitar center. They still sell a lot of guitars. But this flipping of thinking about not the product, but the customer, it expands your way of thinking. So they brought in a new brand new CEO a few years ago, a Disney exec, and, and he asked everybody to think about the customer's perspective. And what their research showed was they sell a lot of guitars to first-time guitar buyers, but they all quit 
90 percent of them quit after three months because it's just too hard right and and then the guitar just just sits on the shelf somewhere it sits in the attic it sits in the garage but if the customer's still playing by month 12 they become like players for life right and so express the software as a service terms that's like a 90 percent churn after 30 days or after three uh, three months and so so what they said was how do we how do we bridge that and 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 is it about you know, making a smart guitar. It's like, no, 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 what we need is we need a whole series of digital tools, right? Things on the, on the phone, on the iPad to, to, to get them to come back. And so we have Fender Tune, so we know how often they're tuning the guitar. And then we launched Fender Play. We invested millions of dollars in these high-end production videos of uh, people teaching you how to play guitar. So for 20 bucks a month, because if you're going to get somebody to come to your house, right, to teach how to play guitar, I mean, what is that? That's like 90 bucks, 100 bucks a week. Yeah. Right, this is just 20 bucks a month and it's at your own pace and they can actually see like who's taking the lessons, who's not taking the lessons, how far they're advancing. And what they said is this isn't about playing the guitar, right? This is this is Fender, right? What, you don't want to play, you want to be a rock star, right? You yeah. want to be, you want to like, like you know, pretend you're a rock star, you want to play with your friends, you want to jam, right? And so so they're not teaching you how to play like Mary Had a Little Lamb. They go, they take you right into YouTube. Yeah. They take you know, right into Bob Marley, right? They find some simple riffs where it's just like two or three chords and they teach you how to do those. And so, so they're, they're clearly tapping into people's love of music, right? And wanting to be, you know, what, you know, a, a, you know call it a rock star. And, and when they invert the script and they said, all we have to do, if we can just get, you know, a few percentage more people to not quit, right? They're, they're going to buy a lot more guitars. I mean, our, our revenues are naturally going to simply increase. But, so it's not about renting the product. It's really about understanding what customers really, really want. They want to get from point A to point B. They want to have, they want to be entertained. They want to do work productively, right? They want to be a rock star, whatever it happens to be. That's really at the essence of, of this whole shift to a subscription economy. Okay, you want to get in the lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, lightning round. So we're just going to ask you like super quick questions, super quick answers. Sure. Um, about different things. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun right now? The most fun right now? Um, what app am I using that's the most fun? Puts a smile on your face. Um, so, the app that I use the most, that gives me the most smile on my face is going to be, strangely enough, it's going to be WeChat because it's uh, what I use to communicate with my daughter uh, over video, especially when I'm traveling. Love it. Are you using AI right now, either personally or? I think everybody's using AI, whether you realize it or not. Uh, I, I love the Echo. Uh, yeah. Admittedly, I'm only using it primarily for music or alarms. Uh, but with my daughter, you know, we love asking Alexa completely random questions, or she does, and <laughs> seeing what happens. Favorite podcast? Favorite podcast? Uh, I am starting to get into um, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Revisionist um, History. Yeah, yeah, we love his books. Um, actually, he, he, was, he was our model. He was our mental model when we wrote our books. And we could say, look, if we could be a fraction as good and entertaining as Malcolm Gladwell, that would be a hit. Other than Subscribed, which is our favorite recent book, what's your favorite recent book? My favorite recent book, um, I just started this, so I don't know where it's gonna go yet. Uh, the Three Body Problem. Oh, that's great. It's, it's, a, a, great uh, it's, it's a translated uh, science fiction book from China. You see the Amazon option rights for that. Oh, really? Like oh, that's probably like smart. Billion, yeah, billion dollar option. I'm really excited about that book. Yeah, are you still you're on the first one right now? Or? Uh, I'm on like the first chapter. 
Okay, it's uh, don't ruin it. You're gonna love it. Yeah, it's, it's you're, epic. You're te- yeah. So, are you a big sci-fi reader, or just I went, to, I went to probably went through a sci-fi phase. Okay. Any other favorite trilogies or series or favorite trilogies? Really, you know, like I, I read Banks or the Culture series. Or? No, okay. no. These days, it's hard. It's hard if you're gonna dip into my science fiction portfolio. It's gonna have to go back to like you know Isaac Asimov or gotcha. Robert Heinlein. Okay. And those guys. Nice. But I should probably read Fahrenheit 451 again, given that it's about to hit TV. Yeah, yeah just, I just, just I watched it. it was, Did you? Uh, it, was pretty, yeah. it was a pretty good remake, yeah. Um, what's your favorite show or content? It could be like a web series. It could be a TV show. It could be anything. You know, I, uh, I prefer to binge, so I wait to the end of the season. Now that Westworld Season 2 is over, I think I've got to binge Did you watch weekend the ahead of me. I, I binge the first season, yeah. yeah. Okay, what is your favorite? And you know, we have listeners all around the world, but we like to ask this question for people that wherever they're living. What's your favorite one day getaway in the Bay Area? One day getaway in the Bay Area. Gosh, I mean, this is uh, not that there's a there's a lot of you know, growing up in New York. There's certainly a lot of getaways. It's just so much easier in the Bay Area. The great thing about the Bay Area is there's so many one day getaways. Um, if I didn't have to think, if I didn't have to plan, uh, it'd probably be Napa. Just going up to Napa hitting a few wineries, right? Finding some of these one, two, three-star Michelin restaurants. Yep. Right? And you don't really have to plan too much. You could just head up there and uh, spend a day. Love it. Um, okay, so final, any things that, that, by the way, that you have that we haven't touched on? We have like just one or two more questions and we got to hop. Uh, no, no. More questions are great. Okay, so we know that there are like teens and marks working Azora right now that are innovating, that are pushing innovation. How do you foster those ideas and like empower entrepreneurial thought? Um, so we, 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 we touched on it a little bit of the book, but, but uh, not, not completely. Um, you know, we're obsessed with how to, how to build a company where uh, it's not a top-down company. It's a bottoms-up company. It's a decentralized organization. Um, we have this whole concept of ZEOs. We call ourselves ZEOs. The reason that phrase came along is because there was some offsite uh, that we, really, we literally took everybody uh, up in Napa, uh, coincidentally, for a couple of days. And um, we were talking about our values. We were talking about our cultures. We were probably about a 200-person company at the time. And um, this phrase CEO came out because someone said, look, you, you know, this company might have one CEOs, but how awesome would it be if, if everybody was a CEO? And we said, and, and people loved it. And so we said, well, let's, let's work on that, right? How do, we, how do we make that happen? And, and so if you can make that happen, and I'm not saying it's easy, right? And, and, and we spend a lot of time and energy and effort doing so, then innovation is going to happen, right? Because people are naturally innovative. People are naturally creative. People are naturally want to do things, right? but you got to unlock, right? You, how do you unlock human's natural capability, people's natural capability, uh, the human spirit? And, 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 and uh, if you can do that, then, then, then we could do something really special. Nice. So it's still day one for SaaS in a major way. It's just getting started. So SaaS companies are growing at, let me see if I can get this right, about eight times faster than the S&P 500? Subscription businesses, yeah. Subscription businesses. That's right. So what are some signs that you see that prove that it's kind of like day one in this industry, it's just getting started, and it's going to be potentially encompass every business? Or what do you think the future is of uh, SaaS? Well, if you, if you think about just the software industry, um, Salesforce started in 1989, right? It's, it's about to hit their 20-year mark uh, next year. 
and um, and everybody knows that the future of software is subscriptions. You see Adobe, you see Autodesk, you see these companies make the complete switch. You see Microsoft make the switch. But I think I read a stat out there that says 50, 60% of software is still sold under a non-subscription basis. Wow. And so, so, so these things simply take time. Sure. And, and you think about, you know, yes, the music industry is, is, is all subscriptions now. You feel the video industry you know, quite a bit is, is, is all subscriptions. But we talk about manufacturing and, and you know, when is Ford and GM going to stop selling cars and really allow people to subscribe to cars, right? It's not two years. It might not even be five years. It could be 10, 15, 20 years. And then you think about the industries that haven't even started down this path yet. You, know, you, you can think of healthcare, you can think of government. Um, we like talking about education. Education is funny. It's one of the only industries that fires its customers every two to four years, right? <laughs> and um, and so, so, but education should be for life, right? right. Uh, obviously. And so, um, so these things take time. These things take time to play out. I, I think this is one of those adoption curves, if you will, that's going to feel in hindsight like, like, like the internet or things like that that will play out over a multi-decade cycle. Love it. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. Of course. Yeah, for everybody listening, subscribe is an excellent read. We finished it. We highlighted it. We have yeah, dog-eared copy in front of us right here. And subscribe is not only a book, it's also a magazine and a podcast that uh, Zora creates. Um, so where's the best place for people who are interested to find the book, or find you, or learn more about Zora? Yeah, if you Google subscribe, you go to subscribe.com. I mean, we, you're absolutely right. We have a whole uh, section where, where we hold events where people talk about the subscription business model. We bring together finance people to talk about that. We yeah, it's also a conference. Folks. I forgot. It's a, it's a conference, and we have these around the world. We have our big one in San Francisco. It literally was just two, three weeks ago, but I just came back from Munich and Stockholm uh, where we had uh, smaller local events. Um, but the reason we wrote the book is that there's, there's only a lot of these stories actually started in the conferences and a lot of the companies were that highlighted were speakers right they were sharing their stories and good enough to share their stories um you know we understand that there's a lot of effort to fly to a place and attend a conference and so we try to capture a lot of those concepts and, and, and put in the book great awesome thanks well, so much yeah thanks Thank so much you. for your time it's great Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.